Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and welcome to episode 22 of the Equip Project podcast. The coronavirus pandemic continues to paralyze normal life all over the world. In the UK, we are about a week into social lockdown and only allowed to leave our homes for very specific reasons. The situation in the Republic of Ireland is very similar, and some experts believe that this lockdown could go on for months. So in this episode, Jim, um, we're going to reflect on the idea of lockdown from a number of different angles. But to begin with, how are you coping with this level of confinement yourself? Well, as you know, I live alone in an extremely rural setting. So the potential risk for someone like me is a feeling of loneliness. But the truth is, I'm running around like a headless chicken these days trying to get the church online. Uh, it's not just about videoing weekly services. We're trying to get our home groups on Zoom, keeping our teens and young adults engaged, reaching out to our regular visitors, trying to do something for the Sunday school kids. And then, of course, there's the pastoral care for our elderly folk. So I don't have time to get lonely these days. I feel much more sympathy for, say, a, a couple squashed into a tiny flat in central London with two young kids. Uh, that scenario would have me climbing the walls by day three. Uh, <laughs> how are you and Rachel surviving? Yeah, I think we, we seem to be holding up fairly well uh, so far, Jim. We live in Belfast, so we've got a pretty small garden. So I do feel envious of, of the amount of space um, that you have around around your home. The real trick in this situation is to be grateful that you have a home to be locked inside. I mean, I spent so much of my earlier life traveling, hopping from city to city and country to country, living in hotels. And back in those days, if you'd offered me an enforced three-week stay at home, I'd have bitten your arm off. On that note, Jim, you have a number of amusing tales about life on the road, and I've heard uh, at least one or two before. But I was thinking we should give you a slot on each of the next few episodes to lift our spirits. <laughs> you want me to tell one of my travel I stories? Really, I really do. I'm very excited. <laughs> well, I, I, I do have an endless supply of them. Okay. Well, I do remember one time back in the 1990s, uh, I was in LA and I was just about to catch a flight back to Heathrow um, when I was given a three-line whip to attend a meeting in Washington, D.C. Now, this was back in the days uh, before smartphones, okay? So in those days, mobile phones were the size of a brick. Uh, and they didn't work in the states, so we had to rely on a thing called a filofax. Have you heard of Have you heard of this thing? I have heard of that. I think oh. Rachel might have one. Actually. <laughs> it's just a glorified diary, really. Uh, now, my long-suffering PA had booked me into a really nice hotel in the centre of Washington, but I was so irritated at life that I didn't write his name down until after the call. So inevitably, I got it wrong. Anyway, I arrived in Dulles Airport, bleary and jet lagged, and I gave what I thought was the name of the hotel to the cab driver and he twisted round in his seat and he said, really? And he then shrugged his shoulders and drove me into a really, really dodgy part of Washington. And eventually he abandoned me outside the worst hotel I have ever stayed in in my life, right? My bags were dumped on the pavement before the cab drove off, squealing tires, you know, at high, at high speed. Now, to give you a general sense of this hotel's ethos, first, there was an iron grill welded to the reception desk. Uh, the receptionist was a lady of uh, uncertain years and she sported an attractive spider's web tattoo on her neck and she stared menacingly at me through the grill and tapped her cigarette and told me she had no rooms but I could have the overflow room. I don't think I've told you the story before. Have I've never heard of right, okay. Now, I was so intimidated by this woman, I meekly accepted the key that was slammed down on the desk in front of me and I went off to find the overflow room. Now, the first thing to say is that it wasn't even a room, right? So I walked down this dingy badly lit, malodorous corridor. And at the very end, there was a fire escape. And just before the corridor ended, it, it had widened quite a bit. So some enterprising chap had built an internal fire door 
and romantically called the space in between the two doors, the overflow room. Okay, so the bed was like something from a World War II prisoner of war camp, and above it was undoubtedly the biggest fire alarm I have ever seen. It was the size of a large basin, okay? And I've no idea how they got away with it, but apparently they installed one of these things on every floor, and it just so happened that the one for my floor was 18 inches above my head. Well, the inevitable occurred. 4.15 in the morning, the fire alarm went off. And it was like a nuclear attack warning. I mean, I performed an act which under normal circumstances would be impossible. I mean, by the time I woke up, I was completely upright. In fact, I was running off the end of the bed and I smashed into the wall opposite and fell whimpering to the floor while the angry god of noise blasted me into submission. Now, understandably, all the other occupants of the hotel came running through my room to get to the fire exit. And all the men seemed to have these huge beards. They were sort of leather waistcoats and they had motorcycle helmets. All the women seemed to be called Darlene. Basically, the entire cast of Sons of Anarchy came plowing through my bedroom and I was so completely disoriented. And the one thing I can remember was that I kept trying to fit my cufflinks into the sleeves of my pyjamas. And eventually I tottered out after these motorcycle people and I stood for an hour in the rain in this desolate car park. And eventually we were allowed back in. But of course, I was too scared to fall asleep, completely intimidated by this contraption over my head. Now, if you had offered me the chance of a three-week lockdown at home, I'd have paid you money. <laughs> Jim, that is excellent. I, I really enjoy that, and I'm excited to hear next week's um, edition. Uh, fantastic. And I think that, that just reminds us that being stuck at home isn't that bad after all. Um, but for most of the discussion, Jim, I want to think about the concept of lockdown, because the idea of being forced to live in a confined space applies at all sorts of levels, not just a physical place. But before we do that, can you think of any solid advice for how to handle life in a physically confined space for a long period of time? Well, I'm not sure I can say anything that hasn't already been said by others, but there's a few things spring to mind. I mean, the most important thing is to establish a daily and weekly rhythm. You know, I, <laughs> I always dread those days, you know, those days between Christmas and New Year, when all the normal rhythms of life get shot to pieces. So, you, you know, you find yourself eating a slice of Christmas cake and some blue cheese for breakfast, you know, at noon. Have some chores that you can uh, return to. Um, so at the moment, I'm, I'm trying to create the mother of all spreadsheets for a little church project. Now, it is a mind-numbingly boring task, but it does provide some evidence that I have been slightly productive. And then there's a weekly rhythm. A weekly rhythm is vital. So get washed and dressed before you join your morning service each Sunday. Try to join some online prayer meetings or Bible studies on Zoom. And avoid spending all your time listening to those media bores talking incessantly about the coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the media can't seem to talk about anything else. And all the statistics about the overflowing hospitals and the temporary mortuaries that are being built, it can all become pretty depressing and actually make us feel more anxious. I would seriously advocate that you listen to no more than one news bulletin each day. Uh, can you think of any other good advice for young Christians in this situation? I, I think that's really sound advice, Jim. And I have quite an anxious personality myself, as you know. Um, so for me, it's actually been really helpful to have something positive to apply my energy to. Uh, so, so that in my case looks like getting two weekly podcasts out and helping our church transition to the online space. But for our listeners, there are plenty of good and helpful things they could be focusing on during this period. It could be something explicitly Christian, such as taking a book of the Bible and, and studying it in depth um, with the goal of, of knowing it in, inside out by the end of the lockdown. I, I think that'd be a wonderful thing to do. It could be being super intentional about looking out for a friend or family member, writing them encouraging notes, arranging Zoom calls 
with isolated relatives or, or just looking out for our neighbors. So my advice would be think of the thing that you can apply your mind to now that you wouldn't normally have the time to do. Other things that, that came into my head, Jim, you're going to laugh at some of these. Maybe bake a loaf of, of sourdough bread. <laughs> <laughs> learn to cook Thai food. Learn, learn a language. Uh, so that's my advice. Um, apply your mind to doing something positive and work at it as if for the Lord. <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy that. I think I need to install a fire alarm before I try to enable it. Now, I was intrigued by the suggestion that the idea of a lockdown can operate at different levels. But just clarify clarify for me, what did you mean by that? Well, so far we've been thinking about being confined within a physical space. But confinement can also occur at other levels in our lives, can't it, Jim? I think it can. The author of Ecclesiastes has that idea, I think, when he talks of living life under the sun. Ecclesiastes starts off with those famous words, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? What does the phrase under the sun actually mean here, Jim? I think it's code for the philosophy known as materialism, you know, where reality is confined to that little bubble called the physical world. So under the sun, to use that term, all of life reduces to atoms banging into other atoms. Any ideas about a human soul or there being a god or an unseen kingdom of spiritual realities, all that stuff gets shut out. Life under the sun is a closed, self-sufficient system. Nothing gets in or out. It's a materialistic lockdown. And when God's people were enslaved in Egypt, they were locked into a closed system, weren't they? The Egyptian pharaoh had no time for worshipping God or serving him. For him, life was about work and power and money. So he really resented the idea of letting God's people out to engage with spiritual realities. But when they did eventually escape from Egypt, the promised land is pictured as much bigger and less constrained as a place to live. Yes, I remember many years ago having to preach through the book of Joshua. And as you may well know, the second half of that book, well, it's essentially an ancient ordinance and survey map. And I was really struggling to find something useful to say. But then I suddenly wondered what an ancient Israelite would think of those descriptions of boundaries and land portions. He would love them because they would be describing his real inheritance. So I decided to preach chapter 15 of Joshua in that way, as if it was like an exhilarating flight over this enormous territory in the south of Israel. So I got people to imagine being on a helicopter flight, looking at panoramic views, and so we begin down near the Salt Sea, then we sweep down to the Brook of Egypt, curve up the eastern border by following the Jordan and turn northward toward Gilgal. And all along the way, you would see little villages and sheep grazing in fields and orchards and vineyards. Then we go over the mountains to the end of the Valley of Rephaim, pass some waterfalls, and finally come out of the Great Sea itself. Now imagine the excitement you would feel if you knew that this land was given to you. It's scale would be breathtaking when you contrast it uh, with the brick kilns of Egypt. And are you saying that was the author's point? The smallness of naturalism is being contrasted to the scale of a life lived as part of God's great story. Yes, I am saying that. Our natural worldview is very small and self-contained. Without salvation, we live in this small, narrow world where life is about pleasing myself or working to get other people to admire me. The philosophy of eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die is life lived on a minute scale. In contrast, the Christian inheritance is expansive and panoramic. There is no lockdown in the promised land. I think that's a a really cool idea, Jim, but I guess it raises the question, what actually is the Christian inheritance? How do we apply this great 
panoramic view of Judah's territory. Well, John 17.3 gives a concise definition. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the Christian inheritance is nothing less than knowing God himself. I think this is a difficult idea to explain to someone who doesn't know God. How would you go about trying to explain what it feels like to know God? Yeah, it is difficult. When Christians talk of God's love or his wisdom, his righteousness, that can seem to the unbeliever to be just a list of abstract ideas. But God is a person who can be known and enjoyed. So let me try and illustrate what I mean. When God made our taste buds, he had already designed the strawberry. When he designed our eyes, he wanted us to see the Rocky Mountains or a sunset over the Danube. When he designed our sense of hearing, he knew that one day Bach would write his double violin concerto. You see, the human body was designed to enjoy the physical world. Strawberries, the Rockies and Bach aren't just abstract ideas. They actually exist and we really enjoy them. You would never explain to anyone using words the explosion of taste that occurs when you eat a lovely meal. You would say, taste it for yourself. Similarly, the human soul is designed to enjoy God. In Christ, the human soul finds someone who is big enough to satisfy it. It's interesting, you know, the, the idea of knowing God is often described using the metaphors of the five senses. Taste and see that the Lord is good, says the psalmist. Paul talks of the aroma of Christ. Or, behold the Lamb of God, says John. So the Christian isn't somebody who adopts a set of religious ideas. The Christian is really like those people of Judah, scrambling up a hill to see what's on the other side, breathing the sharp, tangy air coming off the sea. Just as they lived and breathed in their new land, so the Christian, by giving up selfish desires and self-reliance, can have the joy of knowing God, sharing his life, breathing heaven's air. That description reminds me of one of my favourite verses at the end of John's Gospel. And John writes, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. I absolutely love that verse, Jim, and, and just the sense that God is vast and even all the books in the world aren't sufficient to express his greatness. That's right. The sheer scale of God means that we can never come to the end. Uh, at the conclusion of the book of Job, God takes his faithful servant on another panoramic view of his works. And he keeps asking Job, do you understand this? And Job, <laughs> in effect, replies with delight, no, it's all beyond me. I'm just a created man. Yeah, and in Ephesians, Paul prays for ordinary people, not the wise or influential of this world, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I guess the question is, Jim, how in practical terms do we begin to see our inheritance and start to appreciate God himself? Well, I think that phrase I used earlier is very helpful. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The practical point here is to acquire the taste for the things of God. Um, as you know, my sister is an excellent cook, but she sometimes had to cook for people who had deeply conservative views on food. My father is now home in heaven, uh, but I remember one infamous moment when, for my dad's 80th birthday, Helen offered to cook him a meal, and he had the choice of any mix of ingredients from nearly any of the world's great cuisines. He thought long and hard, and then he said, 
I quite like that breaded fish from Tesco's. <laughs> now, my dad fought in the Second World War, but he had never he was never closer to death than in those moments. <laughs> but on a spiritual level, many of us have a very small diet. To taste and see that the Lord is good, we must acquire a new set of tastes. There's no point going over the same infantile lessons we were taught as children time and time again. That's like a 40-year-old man who lives on chicken nuggets and poo bear ice cream. You should expect to learn in the Christian life. So read widely in Scripture. Find good Bible teachers who will deepen your appreciation of God's character. And at the same time, as we start to trust God in real-world situations, you begin to breathe the oxygen of prayer. And then we then discover more of his character, like the ancient Judeans scrambling up the brow of a hill. Um, we, we learn to know God more deeply and see more of his grandeur. I really love that idea, Jim. So we've thought quite a lot about how Christianity allows us to escape the lockdown of materialism. Instead of being confined to life under the sun, Christian believers are free to explore the depths and expanse of knowing God himself. And that just feels like a bigger, more extensive way of living rather than this eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die type lifestyle. Just before we draw this episode to an end, Jim, do you think that Christians can impose their own lockdown on how they go about their Christian lives? (laughs) That's a great question. Many churches have got into trouble because they've got the balance wrong between being distinctive and being accessible. And and probably the best way to explain that problem um, is to take a metaphor from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, because in the book of Nehemiah, when we first see Jerusalem, uh, it's a mess. The walls are all broken down. It's nothing but heaps of rubble. So there's no community living in the city at all. So as you well know, Nehemiah leads the effort to build walls. But he didn't just build walls. He also built gates. So there was controlled access as well as protected distinctiveness. So let's apply that. Some churches have no walls at all. There are no boundaries. But without being disrespectful, it seems to me that it is impossible to maintain a distinctive Christian witness if there are no boundaries in place. But then at the other end of the spectrum, some churches build walls, but no gates. They cut themselves off completely from the society in which they have been placed. They simply hunker down and await the return of Christ. And the problem with churches like that is that they become so inaccessible that they become irrelevant. So churches should not lock down, but they should have boundaries that define their distinctiveness. You've described a spectrum there, Jim, with some churches not having enough biblical distinctives and others being too closed off. My final question is, where would you position evangelicalism on that spectrum today? One of my biggest concerns about the Christian scene these days is that the thing called evangelicalism is fragmenting. In my youth, I attended a Christian union that contained Reformed Anglicans and Presbyterians, Independents, Baptists and Charismatics. Now, we all disagreed about disputable matters, but there was a common ground. There was a shared sense of what an evangelical was. You know, we all submitted to the authority of Scripture. We believed in gospel proclamation and so on. But today, that common ground has been eroded. The Reformed camp seems to be circling its wagons ever more closely. The charismatic churches are plowing their own furrow. So we're in danger of fragmenting into a collection of competing factions who stare suspiciously over our respective parapets at all the enemies who are not inside the city walls. We're even suspicious of our brothers and sisters in Christ in case they infect us with some false teaching. We've gone into a sort of denominational lockdown. There's a real need for young Christians to stand up against that sort of religious elitism. Now, of course, in our own churches, we should teach our own interpretations of Scripture on disputable matters. But as partners in the gospel, We should strive to keep the main thing, 
the main thing. Definitely, Jim, some really helpful thoughts on that. Let's bring this conversation full circle by thinking once more of people who are currently confined to their homes, locked down in a small space with no immediate hope of release. How does our conversation help them? Well, perhaps someone is listening to us now, seated in a small room, looking at the empty streets through their window. Your world has shrunk down to a very small thing. But for the Christian believer, your world is still vast in its scope. Open your Bible and gasp at the sheer sweep of God's grand story, a story that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. You can plumb the profound depths of God's wisdom in constructing a salvation of such awe-inspiring scope. And you can soar on wings like an eagle as you view this present world as heaven sees it. T.S. Lewis told a famous story about a little girl who got locked in a wardrobe. must have seemed like a tiny, confining space. But in fact, it was a gateway to a vast and complex reality that she could participate in. So with us, open your scriptures and enter into the vastness of God's eternal plan. Thanks, Jim, and thank you all for listening to episode 22. We really hope your time in lockdown is one in which you encounter the vast wonder of our God and have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jim and I will be praying for all of you. Please stay safe, continue practicing social distancing, and keep lifting our leaders and nations to the Lord in prayer. We'll see you next week, God willing. But in the meantime, do reach out to us via Instagram or email us at theequipproject at gmail.com.